Um, all right, if you are here for the first time, you should know this. If you come to Grace Fellowship on a Sunday morning, you need one of these books, right? Because we're going to be in the Bible. If you have one, take it out. If you didn't bring one, look on with somebody who brought one. If you need one, come and see me afterwards, and I will make sure you leave with one in your hand. Because this is the Word of God, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and we're going to trust God to, to train us, to teach us, to, to um, shape us into His image through His Word. So I'm going to invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And we've been in this uh, study on biblical faith. What does the uh, life of faith look like? And we've been visiting Hebrews 11 again and again. It's kind of our jumping off place about this whole discussion of faith. And we're going to keep coming back to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. So I want to just begin today by reading you this verse. Hebrews eleven six. 6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Who is him? God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, that's probably where you say, well, duh, of course. Why would anybody come to God if they don't believe that God exists? You have to believe that God exists, but there's more to it than that. You have to actually take him for who he is. And part of that is that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so we've been touching on this and looking at it from a number of different angles. Um, and here's the problem, though. It's not that we haven't heard that God exists, and it's not that we haven't heard that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. The problem is that oftentimes we think it is we who should decide what the reward will be and when we should get it, right? And, and so God says, listen, I want you to seek me because I am a God who is a rewarder of those who seek me? And you think, well, I, I read my Bible every day this week, and I prayed four times this week, and, I, and, and I've been really trying to fix that habit in my life that I know God doesn't like, and, and I'm really trying to seek God because, after all, finals are coming up in two weeks, and if I fail, I'm toast. So I'm going to seek God, and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. I'm going to pass my finals. Now, if it's been a while since you've been a student, maybe that illustration doesn't work for you. Maybe for you, it's a job interview. Maybe for you, it's, a, it's a, a pregnancy that you're waiting for a birth and you want God to bless that child so much. Maybe for you, it's a relationship that's gone bad and you want God to bring it back and restore it. And you think, I, I better seek God because if I seek God, He will reward me. And we want the rewards and we want the rewards to come in our time and in our way. But here's the problem, right? God doesn't always do it in our time and our way. In fact, he usually doesn't do it in our time and our way, which is frustrating, right? Because we are not very good at waiting. Nobody said amen. amen. Is it just me? You're not very good at waiting either, right? As a matter of fact, you're going, how much longer is he going to preach? I just started. Give me a break. <laughs> We're not great at waiting. In fact, some of you, you probably know about this. This is a well-known study. There was a study done in 1970 at Stanford University. It was a guy named Dr. Walter Mischel, and he did this study where um, they took the preschool at Stanford University. That's like if you really want your kids on the academic fast track, you send them to Stanford for preschool. No, they, for the staff and the students, they had this preschool. And so um, they, they went to the preschool at Stanford, and they did this experiment on the preschoolers, which is always a great thing to know you drop your kids off at preschool and they experiment on them, right? So 
they, they said, here's what we want to find out. We want to find out the effect of delayed gratification. And so they did this famous test where they put an individual kid into an empty room where there were no distractions. There was a chair, a table. On the table, there was a plate. And on the plate, there was a marshmallow. And the kid sat in the chair looking at the marshmallow. And the teacher said, I'm going to step out and I'll be back in just a few minutes. And if you want, you can eat the marshmallow. But if you wait until I get back, when I come back, I'll give you a second marshmallow and you'll have two. But if you don't wait, you just get the one. Now, how do you suppose that worked out? Well, they reenacted it. They did the test multiple times again, and one of them's on video. So watch this. <laughs> Pretty great, right? So the whole study actually was not really about what we just saw. The, the point of the study was to track the lives of these kids into adulthood and to separate them into two categories, those who ate the one marshmallow and those who waited for the second marshmallow, right? And they did that because this was done back in 1970, and they tracked the lives of those kids. And what they found is that predictably, those who waited for the second marshmallow had higher SAT scores. They had uh, higher graduation rates from college. Um, they made more money in their careers. Um, they stayed uh, married longer in their marriages. And, and right on down the road, they found that the ones who learned to delay gratification were the ones who were more successful in life in just about every possible way, which is a pretty amazing thing, right? Now, we're watching those kids. That the one that they kept showing, the one who snapped his head when she finally walked in, he was like waiting, you know? You feel for the kid, right? This, the time is just going by and going by. And go, you know how long they made that kid wait? Three minutes. <laughs> three minutes. To him, it was three years, right? And, and he was struggling so much because the desire to have what I want, when I want it, is a, is a shared human desire. We all have the same issue. And God says, listen, I'm a rewarder of those who seek me. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, I get the point, Pastor. You're trying to say, don't worry, God's coming in in just a minute with a bag of marshmallows. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that sometimes the reward that God gives us, it doesn't come anywhere near the time we hope it will come. And it doesn't come in anywhere near the way we thought it would come. You know, um, the real benefit for these kids, the real reward was not the second marshmallow. The real reward for them was that they were developing character. They were learning patience, all of that, right? Because we know you succeed better in life if you have those things. Hebrews 11 tells us that, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, just in case you're already, the thought of marshmallows has got your stomach churning and you're already starting to fall asleep, I want you to say this with me because if you leave here not knowing this, I'm going to be really mad, okay? Let's say it together. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's a fact. It's not something we hope. It's not something we wish was true. It's not about some God that we made in our own image and then said he'll act the way we tell him to. Our God is a rewarder of those who seek him, it's a fact. But we live in a culture of instant gratification, do we not? <laughs> I 
Do you remember when, when you first got internet, those of you who are old like me? Do you remember when you got dial-up internet at your house, right? And, and you, would, you would go and log on, you know, and then you'd go make breakfast, eat breakfast, clean up breakfast, mow the lawn, come back, and it would still be going, making that weird noise, and then it would finally come on. You'd be like, wow, this is awesome. I'm connected to the World Wide Web in only 45 minutes. Now, if it takes you four-tenths of a second to get a page to open when you click on it, you freak out, right? Because we have become this culture where we expect to get what we expect, and we expect it now. And so because that's true of us, we're going to really have to stop and evaluate this claim that God makes about himself where he says, listen, you can trust me because I'm a rewarder. I'm a rewarder of those who seek me. We want it now. We want our healing now. We want that new promotion now. We want that spouse now. We want to get rid of that spouse now. Whatever, the, whatever your situation is, we want it now. And, and we've been taught, and, and let, me just, let me just be really frank and honest with you guys. The primary reason that I'm preaching this series of messages on what biblical faith is all about is because I am really concerned that in the church at large, and what is called Christianity in America today, there is a huge overemphasis on the idea that faith can get you the rewards that you want when you want them. Amen. And so I'm trying to stand against that without at the same time like just you know, naming all these preachers and going, don't listen to this guy, don't listen to this lady because of what they're saying. Listen, there's a lot of preachers out there and I, and I say some stuff that people can critique. I'm not here to knock down preachers, but I am here to say this. There is a wave of this in our culture today that is teaching us a, a, a sort of faith that the Bible doesn't teach. And you say, well, why is that such a big deal? It's such a big deal because people are believing and standing on promises that God never made to them and then holding God accountable when he doesn't come through. That's a problem. If we're going to really understand God for who he is, if we're going to really walk with him, we need to understand better than that. So we want our health, our wealth, our prosperity, and we want it now. But that's not what God promises us. And when we don't get God's best rewards now, we tend to judge God. I just let that statement sink in. We tend, we tend to judge God. And we tend to say, hey, wait a second, God didn't come through. God isn't faithful. God doesn't keep his promises. God must not be powerful because if he was powerful and if he loves me like the Bible says, then he would have fixed my problem the way I wanted it fixed, when I wanted it fixed. And when he didn't, like the preacher told me he would, either there's a problem with my faith or there's a problem with God and either one, I'm in trouble. And that's what people are believing today. How do we know if God is good and trustworthy? Do I determine God's trustworthiness by looking at my current circumstances? Or do I determine God's trustworthiness by looking at the cross and, and looking forward into the promises that God has made, a God who has, by the way, never failed to keep one of his promises? See, you know how after a big game, they interview the star athlete, right? After the Super Bowl, after he tells you he's going to Disneyland, and then they ask you a couple of questions, and, and, and the ones who are Christians or even have any religious connection, whatever, it's very common after you've won a big game for the athletes to thank who? God. 
I'm so thankful that God is so good. If it wasn't for God, I would have never gotten here. And then they go on and answer the questions. The same when they win the Oscar or the Grammy or whatever, and they come forward. And it's always so refreshing when somebody, instead of talking about themselves, they talk about God and say, isn't that great? But here's the thing that bothers me. Where's the glory for God when we lose? What happens when they stick the, inter- the, uh, the interviewer sticks the microphone in front of your face after you just lost the Super Bowl because, I don't know, theoretically, let's just say theoretically that some team like throws an interception at the end of the game from the two-yard line, right? <laughs> and you lost the Super Bowl, right? And you're a quarterback of the team who just threw the interception and you happen to be a Christian and now they put a microphone in your face. What do you say then? Praise God, Russell Wilson gave glory to God anyway, right? How many of you watch American Idol? It's okay, you can admit it. I know it's church. It's all right. I watch American Idol. I think it's great. I wish they'd changed the title of the show, but other than that, I like it. And, and they just had the finale. If, if you haven't seen it, you got it DVR'd, then you know, you're living in the Stone Ages. You should have watched it by now, so I don't care if you get it spoiled. But here's the deal. It got down to the final two, it was down to these two guys, and before they announced who it was, they interviewed them, and they asked this, the guy who ended up losing, his name is Clark Beckham, and they asked Clark about his experience and all that, and he spent the entire time talking about how good God is, how faithful God is, how grateful he is to God, that whether he wins or loses, God is in control of his life, and he couldn't be happier. And I'm just like, Yes! right? However many gazillion people watching American Idol, and God gets the glory from the guy who ends up losing. Now we're on to something. See, this idea that God's going to work for me, and if I just believe enough, I can get him to do what he wants, and then I'll pat him on the back and give him some thanks. It's just not biblical. Listen, the blessings in this life can be pretty great. And I am not somebody who believes that God doesn't want to bless us. He does want to bless you. In fact, if you're here today, you probably drove here today, and you probably have nice, comfortable clothes and stylish clothes on your back, and you probably had a nice meal uh, before you came or after you leave or whatever. You are incredibly materially blessed, right? Hopefully, I don't have to convince you of that. We're incredibly blessed, and we should not make apologies for it unless we came about it dishonestly somehow. But if God has blessed us, we want to give Him all the glory. So I'm not against blessings. Here's what I'm saying. The blessings that we have in this life are nothing compared to the blessing that God has in mind for us for eternity. Nothing. In fact, take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's just like a few books to the left from uh, Hebrews, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's look together at verse 19. Paul has been talking about the resurrection. Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Can people really be raised from the dead? And if Jesus really rose from the dead, what is the significance of that? And he's arguing his uh, point that Jesus is really resurrected, and here's what he says in 1519. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only... We are of all men most to be pitied. So enjoy the blessings God gives you. You know, be wise with your money, save for retirement, take that summer vacation, do all of those kinds of things. Enjoy the blessings that God has given you. But if that's what your life is about, Paul says you're pitiful. It's a pitiful life. That whatever this world has to offer, that's all I'm hoping for. 
That's the best. I'm just hoping to be rich and comfortable and live to an old age and everybody's nice to me and I get what I want. That's what I'm hoping for. If that's your big goal in life, God says, that's pitiful. You don't even understand what life is about. That's why God has offered us eternal life. And one of the things you have to understand is that one of Satan's strategies is to make us believe that God has made promises to me that he has never made to me. And then to hold him accountable when he doesn't come through. And over and over and over again, I have talked to people who are bitter and disillusioned and frustrated and have walked away from God. And they said, it's not that I don't believe he exists. It's that I don't like him enough to pursue him. Because you know what he let happen to me? I prayed and prayed and prayed. I had a sick child in the hospital. The doctor said she didn't have much chance to live. And I prayed and prayed and prayed and still she died. And I am done with a God who would allow something like that. Now, does your heart go out to that parent? Wow, my heart does. I mean, my goodness, to to have called upon God and hoped for something that was so important to you and to not get it. And you say, how can this be a good God? Listen, it is a gigantic mistake to judge God in the light of our circumstances. We have to judge our circumstances in the light of who God really is. And so the enemy comes along and he tries to get us to believe that God has made us promises for this life that he has never really made, and then we get mad at God when those promises don't come through. One of the best-selling books in the Christian literature market in the last five years or so has been a book by Joel Osteen called Your Best Life Now. Now, I'm not here to say Joel Osteen's a good guy or a bad guy. That's not my point. My point is this. If your best life is now, you are by definition not a Christian. Have you thought about that? Do we really want our best life to be now? Are we really convinced that if we just believe the right things and have a positive attitude and say the right things and do the right things, then we will have an amazing life now that couldn't possibly be any better? Because if that's what you believe, what are you going to say to Job? What are you going to say to Jeremiah? What are you going to say to John the Baptist? Well, after being faithful, he's in prison looking out through the bars. After having been there and heard the voice of God say of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now he's behind bars and his life is being threatened. And what does he do? He calls one of his friends to him and he says, listen, go talk to Jesus and ask him, are you really the Messiah? What? You're John the Baptist. You're his cousin. You leaped in your mother's womb when his mother walked in the room with you in her womb. And now your question is, is he really the Messiah? Man, we start judging God based on our circumstances, we are in big trouble. Even somebody as faithful as John the Baptist. And what did Jesus say to tell him? Go back and you tell him about the sick that are being healed, about the word of God that is being preached, about the lepers that are being cleansed, about the demons that are being cast out. See, sometimes we are so overwhelmed by our circumstances, we just want it to be better now. And it's very discouraging if we've been taught to expect that, to find that it doesn't happen. And I'm trying to protect us from that. See, faith is an amazing and wonderful thing but it's not a magic potion by which we're able to control and manipulate God into doing the things that we want Him to do the way we want Him to do it at the time that we want Him to do it. 
If we're going to truly walk with God by faith, we're going to have to understand that there is more to biblical faith than they taught us in Sunday school. How many of you were blessed enough to have grown up going to church as a child? You got to go to Sunday school and all that stuff. Okay, good. You know, <laughs> there's a few things they didn't tell us in Sunday school. When they were teaching the children about faith in Sunday school and they were using the flannel graph and all that kind of stuff and David was killing Goliath and all of the victories were happening and Daniel was coming out of the lion's den, you know, there were some things they told us and some things they didn't tell us about faith, the life of faith. One of the things they probably told us is faith, it can lead us out of hardships. Faith can lead us out of hardships. In fact, we have a lot of examples of that in Scripture. We have examples of that in our own lives. You, let's say, for instance, that, that you are, um, you're, you're, you're single, you're past the age you wanted to get married, and you've been looking for really this great Christian guy to come along and sweep you off your feet and, like, you have the Bible memorized and all that kind of stuff, and that guy hasn't shown up, but there's this other guy, and he doesn't really, he's not really a believer, he's kind of cynical about all that, but he's nice to you, and he's kind to you, and he, and he treats you good and all that, and you know that the Word of God says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What are you going to do? Your faith tells you, trust God and, and let Him worry about your love life, but you say, I want what I want when I want it. And your faith can lead you out of that hardship. Because, you know, <laughs> we could have a testimony time in here. We just put a microphone here and spend the rest of the time having people come up to the microphone and tell their sad stories about when they didn't trust God with that one and how their life ended up because of it. So sometimes our faith leads us out of hardship. Another thing it can do is it can lead us through hardships. How many times have you heard a testimony of somebody who came to know Jesus while they were in prison, right? They, they, are, they committed the crime. They were convicted. They went to prison. While they were in prison, they had a genuine conversion experience. Jesus came into their heart, and they were transformed, right? They came to know Jesus Christ. And the day that they came to know Jesus Christ, of course, the warden said, great, and opened the door and let them go home. No, that's not how that works, is it? Sometimes you've got to go through your hardship, and it's your faith that gets you through it. But here's the one they didn't tell you in Sunday school. Sometimes faith leads us into hardships. Sometimes the very fact that you are faithful will cause you more difficulty in the short term in your life. We don't talk about that in Sunday school. Take, for instance, we talked last uh, few weeks ago in Daniel chapter 3. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they got thrown into the fiery furnace and all that kind of stuff? And we, we look at that. Do you know why they got thrown into the fiery furnace? Because they were men of faith. It was their faith that caused the problem. Now you say, well, yeah, but remember their story. It turns out great. They get rescued from the flames, and now everything goes good for them. Yeah. Do you know why we have that story in the Bible? It's an awesome story. It's a great, the true story, fantastic story. It builds up your faith. Do you know why it's there? Do you know why it made the scripture? Because it's so stinking rare. Most stories about people who are told by a king, either you do what I say or you'll be put to death. You know what happens to them? They get put to death. That's why the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is worth recording. Because it's so unusual. Daniel got thrown into the lion's den. Yeah, but he got out, right? Yeah, but he also went in. <laughs> That's hard. 
That's hard. You go, well, but he got rescued, right? Yeah, but it doesn't always work that way. In fact, again, the story is told because most of the stories don't work that way. And if you don't believe me, look at the story of Job. Go in your Old Testament. Right before you get to Psalms is the book of Job. I want you to go to Job chapter 1, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because even if you're not a religious person, even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably heard of Job and you know Job's story. You know that Job was wealthy and he was comfortable and his life was great and he was a follower of God and he was very righteous and suddenly everything went terribly wrong. The scripture tells us it went terribly wrong and this is a weird story. I don't, I'm not even going to try to explain it to you. It's a weird story that Lucifer comes before God And God says to Lucifer, hey, look at my servant Job. What a righteous man he is. And uh, Lucifer's response is, well, of course you give him everything he wants. He's so blessed. How would he not follow you? If you took that stuff away from him, he will curse you in a moment. And God said, you have the power to take those things away from him. And let's watch what he does. Now, pick it up in verse 13. Chapter 1, Job, verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkey feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The fire from where? God. Okay. Verse 17. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Sheep and donkeys and camels and servants and wealth and now children. How was your week? All of this happened in 30 minutes. While he was still speaking, the next one came. And while he was still speaking, the next one came. His life went from riches to rags in a moment. And verse 20 says, Then Job arose and and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground. And what did he do? Worshipped. There's a whole other sermon for that. Verse 21, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And then we get 41 chapters of Job's struggle. Struggle. He struggles and he struggles and he struggles and he struggles and he refuses to sin, but he is, he is losing his understanding, he's losing his hope, he's frustrated. He's saying, God, I know you are who you say you are and you will do what you say you will do, but I do not understand this and my heart is broken and my life is terrible. And he even gets sick and he's covered from head to toe with boils and he's sitting out in a heap of ashes. Picture this, this is going to gross you out, maybe you won't have lunch. He's sitting out in a heap of ashes and he takes a broken piece of 
uh, clay pot and he's scraping the boils on his body. And while he's doing that, his lovely bride comes out and says to him, you should just curse God and die. What an encouragement. And we get 41 chapters of him struggling. And finally, God gets his attention and God humbles him. And Job comes to the place where he comes to understand that God knows stuff he doesn't know. God has a plan he doesn't have. And that he can't have any reason to complain against the God who has provided his own life. And then we get to chapter 42. And it turned to the very end of the book of Job, chapter 42. And in Job 42, it says, chapter 42, verse 12, The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. So he got all of this back and more. But let me just stop you before you go. See, another one of those stories. God comes through. Maybe he had to wait a little longer, but God gave him what he wanted. Let me ask you this. Did he get his children back? Did he get his pain back? Was he, was he delivered from those things? No. See, he had to live through the whole struggle. And I guarantee you that he loved his new children, but that didn't replace his dead children. Sometimes our faith leads us through the struggles. His faith led him into the struggle. Why did his faith lead him into hardship? It says, why did he face all of this? Because he was too faithful. Because he was so faithful that he had to face this trial. Now you say, well, pastor, you've done it. You've talked me out of being faithful. <laughs> Here's my point. We must not judge God's goodness in the midst of our circumstances. We must judge our circumstances in the light of who God is. Because when it's tough, it doesn't look like God is who He says He is. And when it's dark, you can't see the light of His presence. But He's still God. And we've been in the book of Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews 11 real quick and we'll wrap it up. Hebrews 11, this great hall of faith... And I've been encouraging you to be reading through Hebrews 11. Hopefully you've been doing it, getting familiar with a lot of these people that are listed here in Hebrews 11. But in Hebrews 11, verse 32, when he, after he gets through naming all these names of great people of faith, here's what he says, verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, there's Daniel, quenched the power of fire, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. He's saying, look at these people. They trusted God and look at the amazing things God did. And we could close our Bibles and we could say, amen, isn't God amazing? He's going to give us the things that we want unless we decide to finish reading the verse. Which continues in verse 35, it says, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, 
not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They actually tasted death. And they didn't get their camels back, and they didn't get their sheep back, and they didn't get their kids back. They just died. And boy, were they glad they did. Because then they understood what it means when it says that if you want to come after God, you must first believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Your reward from God is not another marshmallow. Your reward from God is eternal life in His presence, freedom from sorrow, freedom from fear, freedom from sin, freedom from temptation, freedom from death. That's your reward. And He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You know, Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham over and over. You know, Abraham had this great promise from God. Leave your land, I will give you a land flowing with what? Milk and honey, this great land that you didn't build the buildings and you will get the land and you will be a great nation and you will have all of these blessings. You will have all of this posterity. You will have all of the, if you can count the stars of the sky, then you'll be able to count your descendants. When Abraham died, do you know how much land he owned? One burial plot. Do you know how many children he had with Sarah? One, and he waited 25 years to get him. And then he died. And boy, was he glad he did. Because that's when he found out that God is actually a rewarder of those who seek Him. Jesus came to give us eternal life. And when we boil it down and make it about something less significant than that, and we think it's about comfort and ease and all those kind of things that we want, we are selling short the true gospel of Christ. Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross that we might have eternal life. Not someday in heaven, today. We're already in it. And the day is coming, unless the Lord comes back beforehand, when you two and I are going to die. No matter how hard someone prays, no matter how much we think that our, our job is unfinished, no matter how much we want to go on, you and I are going to die. And the moment we do, if we die in Christ, we'll say, boy, am I glad I did. Let's get our perspective straight. As we come to the table this morning to take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of what Jesus did for us. He went to the cross, shed His blood, gave up His body so that He could be punished for our transgressions. He bore our penalty. 